0: People talk about, you know, yeah, I need to raise capital, but sometimes the capital may not be there or it may not be there when you do want it. And, you know, in an environment where people are maybe very risk averse and people may not be willing to invest in startups, I think startups need to be creative in how do I create opportunities for myself without raising capital? And, you know, what do I have that's of value to somebody else and who is a somebody and how do I approach them with it?
1: Well, hello there, this is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks podcast, where it is my great pleasure to introduce an incredibly talented team of thought leaders and innovators, who are at the forefront of reinventing the way retail companies and channels make business decisions today. Hiver is pioneering hyperlocal retailing by combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models to help... CPG companies and retailers generate a return on physical retail space investment. Hivory does this through simultaneously optimizing and localizing product, price, space, and promotions. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Roy Cook, the Director of Finance at Hivery. Roy's passion lies in building something from scratch that has a tangible impact. And, with the onset of new technology creating a massive pool of opportunities that have a direct impact on our lives and choices we make, Roy wants to build solutions that allow people to appreciate this new technology. As a founding member of Stone & Chalk, a tech innovation hub in Sydney, Roy has been already included in the startup scene for a long time and, for his next adventure, was looking for a company that had the following criteria. It had to be a global tech AI company shifting gears from startup to scale-up. And when I asked Roy what stood out the most to him about Hivery, he said that during the interview process he got to know a lot of the team members and had a strong appreciation for the culture and loved everyone's passion for using AI to solve a real-world problem. This year Hivery was ranked ninth fastest growing company in the Australian Financial Review top 100 list. So without further ado, we're going to dive into what are some of the common mistakes companies make when they try to scale up and how they can avoid them.
0: Typically, you know, when you're 25 to 30 people, you're probably working on one or two proof of concepts. You've got a few uh, clients that you've been working with over a period of time. So it's quite easy for the management team or the founders to manage that team of about 25, 30 people. The founders are very hands-on. They got in you know, the roll of the sleeves, they get involved whether it's sales, product, and on the operation side. But as a company scales up from 30 people, and now, you know, instead of doing one or two pilots or proof of concepts, now we are doing 10 or 15 of those. uh, You're spread across multiple geographies. uh, Your engineering team is getting bigger. Your product team is getting more complex. And I think, you know, that's a a critical point when you start hitting that scale-up scenario where you need to build out Some of your management depth. And what I mean by that is also, you know, providing the right level of guardrails to make sure that the capital that you've raised or that you have is properly deployed to make sure, for example, you're looking at the right metrics, you know, you're taking a more forward view on things and, you know, driving the right level of alignment between the various teams. Because if you don't do that, for example, if you don't have a good sense on where your financials are sitting, then, you know, as you scale up, you know, what ends up happening is you just keep multiplying some of those common mistakes. So uh, another classic, a lot of the scale-ups are they've just started their sales development or your sales process. And, um, you know, if you don't develop that properly and enhance that and build on that, then what ends up happening is you're not being very efficient or economical in how you scale the business up. Each uh, sales team, they've got their own sales decks there isn't a formal process that you go through you know in terms of driving some of that sales function so I think those are some of the examples of companies that there's missed opportunities or they look at it and they say wow well, you know we should have done this a bit better but what ends up happening is you know you chew through a lot of capital uh, you take a lot more time than you had anticipated in scaling up the business or you were still you know you were kind of scaled up in the wrong areas for example so it may be a product that is not as profitable or not as strategic for you, and you've ended up spending a lot of time and effort in building that product vis-a-vis another product that could have been more important for you down the track. So having the right management team, uh, the right metrics, having the right thought process to have the dialogue and have the discussions early on, and then once you do make a decision, you know, making sure you deliver against that. A lot of companies, you know, as they grow up from 30 people onwards, They look to deploy or bring on that next level of uh, management and processes that go along with it to making sure that you're deploying your capital most effectively.
1: Roy, as the Director of Finance, you describe your role as a broad-based role covering finance, accounting, risk and strategy, all in an attempt to scale up globally. Could you explain more in detail what each of these areas encompasses?
0: In a nutshell, you know, my role is to build out the finance function at rate, And I think the best way to approach sort of broad task is going kind to of break it up into its component tasks. So at the foundational level, you know, we need to start collecting, analyzing, and reporting all the necessary information. So that information could range from sales metrics to KPIs through accounting information, tax expenses, uh, making sure that, you know, we collect all of that information. It should be quite broad. I think the next task is once you've collected the information is then, you know, working with the leadership team and the various stakeholders to make sure that we understand and analyze that information. And clearly, you know, hybrid being a data-led company where our motto is data has a better idea, we all place a massive amount of importance on the financial data and particularly around the signals it can provide for you and some of the forward-looking signs. And lastly, I think, you know, the most exciting part is you know working very closely with the leadership team and with the information that we have to really use that to shape the strategic direction of the company. Those are many layers to it, and I think the challenge for Highbury is right now at least we're spread across three geographies. Our home office is in Sydney. We've got an office in Tokyo, and we are growing a big presence in the U.S. And as we shift our center of gravity, if you will, from Sydney across the U.S. because that's kind of where most of our customers are going to be we increase the financial literacy of the broader team so that the team can actually make some of those important strategic decisions and we provide them with a framework and the information to really look at the trade-offs and, you know, making sure those decisions are made at a local level within the team as appropriately. You know, when you're in a B2B SaaS environment, people talk about churn rates and customer position rates. Given that we are an AI company, AI companies are somewhat evolving in the next couple of years. You know, we'll see more metrics and more information coming around it. But I see most of the AI companies today, at least the stage that they're in, they're a mix of product and services and trying to build the right metrics and information to describe your business and, you know, be able to manage your business, if you will. It's quite a challenge, but it's quite an exciting one uh, that I'm looking forward to.
1: So you have now mentioned a few times the importance of building the right KPIs to be able to scale the startup properly. When it comes to scaling a startup like Ivory, for example, what KPI and results actually matter and is it industry specific?
0: One of the things that I really focus on is around unit economics. So what I mean by unit economics is what's the cost of us developing a product? And then at what price can we sell that product? How much margin am I gonna make on that product? It sounds very fundamental and basic, but a lot of people miss that. Particularly because when you're an early stage company, you know, the information that you have is limited, it's not as broad and it's not as deep, and it's you know mixed up with freebies that you may give out an early customer, or it could be a trial or a pilot. So at a very fundamental level, really understanding what your unit economics is, no matter what business you are is quite important. If you look at last year, you know, we had some really public examples of WeWork, Uber, et cetera, who uh, when they came into the public, you know, when they were trying to list and, you know, when they put their financials out there, a lot of people started questioning some of the really fundamental questions, you know, how does WeWork make money? And I think those are the fundamental questions that really need to be addressed at very early stage in the company, because if you don't have a really good sense on your unit economics when you start the business or when you're looking to scale up, you know you need, either need to work out you know how do I decrease my unit cost, which could be a combination of uh, operational cost to service a customer, or it could be a customer acquisition cost. Right? You know how do I decrease that? Until you really solve it to your satisfaction, you shouldn't really scale up because what ends up happening is you scale up a problem. So if you're not making money on one unit selling a million units, you're going to have a million times that problem right so I think for me that KPI really comes down to looking at it at a unit cost basis you know when you're talking about an AI company that given where we are today with the technology it always ends up being a service and a product so uh, you really can't productize an AI solution because you know it's so much data driven that you really need to work with our customers through some of that stuff and if you don't price your product that takes into account not just a sales but also onboarding a customer, cleansing the data, making the data right, training the models, training the algorithms, and then, you know, even when you get the results for the customer, you're always fine tuning it. So thinking through the various stages of the product and thinking about, you know, how you're gonna make money and how you're gonna service your customers.
1: I think WeWork example is a great one when it comes to unit economics. It's quite fascinating that the only reason why WeWork had money is because of large investments, to be specific, over $14 billion in funding since 2009, including the investment from the CEO of SoftBank, Masayoshi san, who also notably invested in Alibaba. While WeWork ended up scaling, globalizing, rebranding WeWork to We Company, opening different subsidiaries, just growing into a giant but not making any profit, and After going public, their financials indicated that they were losing $5,000 per customer. And this was the case because WeWork is a landlord company that has long-term expenditures but short-term revenue obligations. They were locked in for a fixed amount for land leases for over 15 years per location and then they would charge a customer $500 a month. And to be precise with 848 locations globally, you can imagine the impact. In the end, it went from $47 billion in valuation to filing for bankruptcy in like six weeks. So it all goes back to unit economics. And Roy, although WeWork is quite a fascinating story, I would love for you, given your experience over the past 20 years across different industries and also your experience as the chief financial officer of a startup in New York during the dot-com bubble to share and pass on some learnings. Perhaps uh, any learnings we can apply in the times of a pandemic.
0: The dot-com bubble and you know, where we are presently with the coronavirus, uncertainty, there's a lot of similarities in it. It really comes down to when you're going through some testing times, you know, you really need to focus on some of the fundamentals. It really challenges you to be quite brutally honest and clinical in your assessment. So particularly, you know, when you go back to the dot-com era, there was a lot of people who were building a lot of startups and there was a lot of hype and energy and enthusiasm. But end of the day, not all of them were tangible business models or they were really good ideas, right? So the dot-com bubble really forces you to really take stock of where you are and your business model and how you're going to get money. So I think, you know, at the first level, am I solving a real problem? And is my solution very real? Do I have something that's unique? And the second aspect, you know, is is your cash runway, right? So if you have 24 months or more in cash runway, then you're good, you know, generally 24 months, you can weather the storm, you can bunker down, you can build a product, focus on what you can, and emerge of the situation in a stronger position. But if you are not, you know, if you don't have the 24-month runway, then you have to create that runway. And there's a bunch of different ways that you have to create that runway, right? So you got to look at your expenses. Maybe you've got to make some hard choices. You know, do you focus on one or two products as opposed to focusing on three or four different products? Uh, maybe you, you slow down some of that product development and you try to work on sales if that's a, if that's a viable option. The other alternative, obviously, is, you know, a lot of times a startups try to Go after too many markets or too many industries all at the same time. Obviously, the opportunity is there; you should go after it. But sometimes narrowing it down and really doubling down on one or two markets, you know, may be the right thing to do. Particularly when um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the global market, Particularly when you may not have be able to raise fresh funds for 12, 18 months. You really have to worry about what's my cash runway? How long do I have? If I don't have that long, cash runway of you know 18 months plus then how do i create that and it could come from a sales side or it come it could come down to cutting costs and making some hard choices
1: when it comes to making harsh choices and asking yourself all those questions one person cannot answer all of them so what is your take on surrounding yourself with the right team and advisors how can one ensure they can do that
0: So for one, absolutely, you know, you're right. I mean, a lot of the time, you know, particularly an early stage uh, startup may have one or two founders. They may have a bunch of engineers working for them. So it is actually quite hard to have the right dialogue and discussion. You can only have so many of those conversations by yourself. So it is about, you know, reaching out to the broader community. And most startups, you know, most founders in today's environment do have that. Hopefully they have a board of one or two members that they can lean on or they have angel investors who they can lean on. But the other alternative is also speaking to other founders, and you do have a lot of co-working communities. While it's important to bounce ideas off different people and have a broader perspective on the issue, it really comes down to also challenging yourself and saying, okay, what information do I need? What can I control? What's within my control? And how can I control that? Because you can always worry about stuff that you can't control. There's not much you can do about it. So I think, you know, it's a combination of you got to get some external perspectives on things. But end of the day, it really comes down to a founder's uh, decisions and, you know, how they go around decision-making process, which is important.
1: Speaking of the current events, Roy, there is no way we can avoid talking about the recent market turmoil. How did this impact the businesses globally?
0: Even before the coronavirus hit, the global markets were quite fragile, uh, particularly the global economies, right? Now, this whole coronavirus thing, you know, just completely tipped things over. Nobody would have really expected it for us to get into an environment where we completely halt all economic activity for an extended period of time. So I think it's this environment. It's quite encouraging to see some of the global economies, you know, provide the stimulus package and provide relief for I guess, certain sectors and for, for consumers and for people as well. The economic impact of this, I think, you know, people are still getting their head around, and I think it could be a while. We are going to slip into a significant recession. It's going to be a, a short one. I'm hoping it's going to be a short one, but it is going to be a sharp tip, and it's going to have a significant impact in certain businesses, particularly in the smaller end, in certain retail sectors, et cetera. You know, my personal take is it's not going to be a quick recovery. The The impact it has on small businesses is going to be quite significant. And uh, it's not small businesses don't recover as quickly as some of the larger businesses. And, you know, there's only so much capital and liquidity you can put into the economy. You know, at some point, you know, it, it doesn't yield the results that you're looking for it to yield.
1: Do you have any recommendations for smaller businesses that don't have financial security and a 24-month cash runway? How can they minimize the impact of the recent market turmoil coupled with the coronavirus?
0: My advice to small businesses is you know, not to take a wait-and-see attitude. You have certain information in front of you. You have a good sense generally as to your cash position. How long, you know, you can survive in different scenarios. And some of the tough choices, you know, you are forced to make. And I think uh, companies need to make those choices sooner rather than later. The sooner you make the decisions, it may help create more options for you down the track. So, for example, if you have to make the hard choice of shutting down a retail franchise or a retail outlet, you'd rather do that quickly and do that decisively upfront, and not let that decision linger on for too long because any money that you could have saved, you know, you can redeploy or extend out the business. Be very decisive around decisions that you need to make, kind of work out what is within your control, what can you do, and really be very clinical or brutally honest in your assessment. Don't try to sugarcoat anything. Don't try to be an optimist. Don't try to solve problems that you can't really solve. Just try to work within your framework and kind of get to that end game. But, you know, you have to be decisive. That's the single most important thing. Companies should avoid getting into a situation where I'm just going to wait for another week or two. I'm going to see how this pans out and that pans out. Those delays could end up being quite costly for the business.
1: Is there any way startups and small businesses can access new capital nowadays, given it's either limited or just completely non-existent?
0: The governments and some of the banks are providing some relief. If you're a startup and you're looking to access capital in an environment like this, you really have to be quite creative and, you know, not be shy about asking for capital or reaching out, trying different options. So, for example, you know, there could be corporates who may be willing to not provide you capital as such, but, you know, may be able to fund a proof of concept to give you some cash flow or work with you to create something. You could end up joining a distribution partnership or a sales agreement that doesn't require you to invest uh, heavily into a partnership or heavily into a sales team before you launch a product. Alternatively you know it could be you know thinking outside the box you know maybe you need to team up with another startup who's got a complementary product or a channel that you want to exploit and thinking you know how can we creatively work together because we're better off working together than being alone trying to solve a bigger problem. So I think access to capital, I mean, people talk about, you know, yep, I need to raise capital, but sometimes the capital may not be there or it may not be there when you do want it. And, you know, in an environment like we are, where you know, people are maybe very risk averse and risk averse come in and people may not be willing to invest in startups. I think startups need to be creative in how do I create opportunities for myself without raising capital and what do I have? that's of value to somebody else and who is a somebody and how do we approach them with it.
1: You touched upon a few strategic directions that companies might be taking during these times when they're trying to survive. Can you speak more about what some of these strategic directions can look like?
0: The big opportunity for, for me in the current environment is to really be broad about your options. Partnerships are probably the most critical one. So, and a partnership could take a lot of different ways, right? Or it could be the distribution side. It could be a product partnership. It could be a sales partnership. There's various ways to evaluate that. The other one that I also think is important is, you know, if there are options to partner up with a team who can help you develop a product, and, you know, you you, know, you get into some type of profit sharing arrangement. So you may say, look, I don't have the funds to go and hire three data scientists. But is there an opportunity for me to work with a company that sees the importance of what I'm building and is willing to fund three data scientists for you know and then we get into a professional agreement where they get some value on the back end of it. Startups founders tend to be quite uh, particularly in situations where you know they're between a rock and a hard place they do end up being quite creative and they look for opportunities and I think you know the bigger part is you know a lot of these opportunities do not come in a silo, so you have to get out there, start talking to people, and engaging with people. And that's the best way to get new ideas. And I know, given everybody's in lockdown, that's a bit more challenging. But you can always reach out, you know, there's other ways to reach out to people remotely and you know, have those discussions.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope it has been of value to you. We are launching two new series of podcasts, Academia and Business Focused, and the next Academia-focused podcast will be featuring Toby Walsh, a leading researcher in artificial intelligence and a professor of artificial intelligence at the University of New South Wales and Data61. At Hyvery, we are passionate about bringing new thinking, ideas, and technology to life. We believe this can help change attitudes, lives, and ultimately the world. In the meantime, if you want to get more familiar with Ivory and our people, I highly encourage you to listen to our other episodes. So stay tuned and till the next time, everyone.